The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Hi there, welcome. It is indeed The Enviro Show with me, Nancy Richards, also together with Kim Winter and with Rob Parkin and with you. And if you'd like to give us a call at any stage along the line uh, during the show, you can. 0892 10 2010 is the number. So let me tell you what we've got coming up on the show tonight. What we're going to do is uh, look ahead to growing the green economy. We'll hear about what's on offer and why at the National Environmental Skills Summit. That's coming up in Johannesburg, uh, March the 3rd to the 5th, I think. And we're going to be chatting to head of the Environmental Education Department at WESA. That's Dr. Jim Taylor. Then after that, we have a young woman in the studio who's been through some green training herself. In fact, she's still going through some green training herself. She'll give us a little bit of an idea of what she's learned and where she's headed with it. She's your Nella Kiliway. Then in our forage feature, we're going to be taking a look at maize. I think it may not be the first time we have, but at the moment, it's uh, as you know, it's our staple food and severely threatened by the drought, which, uh, and it looks like this year's crop, it could be as, as, uh, something like 30% less than that of last year, which is going to impact big time on all sorts of things, not least on our pockets. And whilst we're talking about crops, after that, crop spraying in the Eastern Cape, wiping out illegal dacha. But what else is it wiping out? Well, we'll be talking to Julian Stobes, who is one of the Ducker couple. We'll find out who he is, what the Ducker couple is all about, and also uh, why why the crops are being sprayed and uh, what the long-term effect is, or the, the, the bigger effect uh, right across the region there. And finally, with the all this design and art and design that's happening here in Cape Town, the design in Darbo, there's lots of things going on at the design in Darbo, not least um, it's some people called the EcoBrick people, and we'll be talking about the EcoBrick, its design, the very much the last word in reusing, upcycling, whatever you like to call it. We'll be chatting about that with uh, Ian Domisa, who's the founder of the EcoBrick Exchange. So that's what's on the show tonight, a little bit of eco-info for you, however. You might have heard this one, uh, Greenpeace Executive Director Kumi Naidu, who we had on the show a while back, he said uh, recently that he was not shocked to learn that South Korea had asked for information on him and called him a potential threat ahead of the G20 summit back in 2010. Well, documents leaked to broadcaster Al Jazeera and published this week revealed that South Korea had asked South African intelligence services to spy on Naidu. Probably, he says, as part of their efforts to promote their use of nuclear technology during the summit held in Toronto and Canada. Well, Greenpeace, it's certainly no secret that they have been very active in opposing the use of nuclear technology in South Africa and internationally. So, Kumi Naidu under the spotlight, as it were. And just quickly, uh, last word on the vote for South Africa's favourite bird campaign. You might have heard us chatting about it here on the show. Well, it seems that 8,630 people have voted so far. They have just less than a week to go and they are determined to get the votes up to 10,000. So if you haven't voted yet, there's, what is there, 1,200 and something or other. So please visit their site. It's birdlife.org.za forward slash vote, birdlife.org.za. Dot za and vote for your favourite bird and if you're undecided as to which your favourite bird is please vote for the Hardy Dar because he's the one for whom I am flying the flag and I've been banging on about so vote for the Hardy Dar on the, the Bird Life Vote for Your Favourite Bird campaign and uh, what they're going to be doing in fact cryptically Bird Life themselves say that at this stage um, there is a very pretty bird leading the poll they're not saying who or what and a rather ugly one coming stone last and I'm afraid Mr Hardy Dar is somewhere in the middle 
middle. So if we can just raise him up there, maybe you would just like to go and do that thing and vote. And they will be announcing our country's favourite bird on 5050, uh, the television programme on Sunday, March the 8th. And we certainly will be announcing it right here on The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Well, with unemployment at a worryingly high level here in South Africa, especially amongst our young people, kind of makes double sense not only to be looking at ways of getting people working, but to get them working in a way that is consciously protecting the environment is a bit of a must, actually. Well, this is the guiding principle, it seems, behind the National Environmental Skills Summit, which is happening next week in mid-round between March the 3rd and the 5th, bringing together a whole collection of role players, stakeholders, not least amongst them are Dr. Jim Taylor, who's head of environmental education at WESA, which is the Wildlife and Environment Society for South Africa. Well, Jim himself mentors and works very closely with communities in KwaZulu-Natal, so up there at the coalface, knowing exactly who's working and who isn't. And we got him on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, may I call you Jim? Hi, greetings, everybody, and greetings, Nancy. Thank you very much. Um, Jim, tell us a little bit a little bit about you, your head of the environmental education uh, at WESA. What exactly do you do? Is it to get people working? Is it to, what, what is it that you do exactly? Gee, we have a really simple um, motto for our work, which is to promote um, public participation and caring for the earth. So any task that people can do, whether they're volunteers, whether they're employees, that will really help others become involved in actually caring for the earth is, in essence, what we, we seek to do. Yeah, I think we rather like them to be, to, to be employees. I mean, although volunteering is a wonderful thing, one wants for this to be paid work. You know, it, one doesn't want to sort of put the, you know, rely on people and their goodwill to be looking after the planet. We need for this to be a fully paid up, recognized profession, really. No, absolutely. And in fact, most most work that people do will have some sort of environment component. You know, if you think of municipalities supplying water, um, e even fresh food for people is part of an environmental ethic. And we would just like to share ideas around how you can do it in a more sustainable way so that the people who do have the, have the jobs and are employed to do it are working in a way that actually benefits the longer-term use of these resources. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose even if you're working in a regular office doing whatever, you can be a little bit more environmentally conscious, sort of turn off your lights and your aircon and all that sort of thing. But the, the real issue that we're looking at here is the National Environmental Skills Summit. Who is going to be talking? Who's going to be learning? Goodness me, it's a very exciting meeting, and um, we feel it's possibly one of the most important conferences that happen each year. And the reason for that is that um, South Africa is really at risk from things like service delivery protests and so on, and often it's to do with um, resources that aren't adequately managed or um, municipalities who are unable to supply, whether it be water, we all know about the energy crisis issues, and all of these are linked to how one lives on the earth and how sustainably one, one, one does that. So at the National Environmental Skills Summit, there will be people there from many NGOs. There will be people there from Department of Water and Sanitation, municipalities, district municipalities, also um, other NGOs like Green Matter, who've played a big role in setting it up, Endangered Wildlife Trust, and um, all public-spirited bodies who really have a view to building the skills base of South Africa to address environmental issues and risks that we face. 
I can't help feeling we're coming back to the NGO thing again and, you know, sort of public-spirited people uh, and government departments, municipal departments. What about, the, what about the corporate world? What about the commercial world, the industrial world? Should they not be there as well? No, very much so. And um, we expect quite a presence from um, the corporate sector this year, um, particularly because uh, a whole range of reports have come out around the importance of um, looking after the longer-term um, values um, that actually go towards nourishing industry and business. And at one level or other, all business does depend as well on that resource base. Um, people often say that there are no jobs on a dead planet, and um, that's such a true statement. So whether one's business is mining or whether one's business is manufacturing, making vehicles, um, all those businesses re require those energy sources, they require water, and of course everyone requires fresh air. So we, we, we certainly seek to um, engage with business around how business is done and, and always to look towards that sustainable value that, that is always lurking beneath the skin of these, of these corporate um, endeavours, you know. So do you think do you think the sort of commercial world is going to come there kicking and screaming because, because you know very often these are the things that people avoid or business avoids simply because it's it's more costly it's more difficult we've all got used to doing things in a particular way or, or will they be coming there willingly See I think there's been a big shift and I think a lot more people are are seeing a different way of of managing the environment I think there's a lot more pragmatic views and, and more and more people are realizing that we can't carry on um, exploiting our water resources the way we have. Um, so I don't think it will be so much um, an opposition with the business world as much as saying what steps can business world take, hopefully and often in partnership with government or the NGO sector, to say let's be proud to live in a world where we're all contributing towards sustainability rather than fighting each other about um, different opinions. So the word skills is sort of used in its broader sense. I mean, it's skills, it's, you know, skills always sounds like you're training people to do something that they haven't done before. And I suppose in some ways we, we're training people who are already in business to do things in a different way that they've done before. But just, just let's stay with the sort of the job creating component. Will there be people actively uh, there recruiting people to, to sign up for different uh, courses, training, that sort of thing? Yeah, there, there is certainly an element of that. And in the, in the recent um, um, report on green jobs, they estimate that over 200,000 jobs in the short term can be created through uh, the green economy, you know. So um, there is that possibility of jobs for all. But the Skills Summit isn't so much about... Um, finding people jobs as skilling people to look after the resources in, in a much more longer term and wise way. So, you know, the, the, the pressures that are imposed on the environment are essentially uh, done by people. So if it's people that are at the root of our water crisis, our energy crisis, then surely the, the solution is um, better skills to cope with these problems. So, um, a people-centered issue requires a people-centered response, and that's why this summit is looking at what skills do people develop and how to be able to manage the resource base much better and in a much more sustainable way.
Okay, we'll get to the skills in just a minute. The 200,000 odd jobs that are said to be part of the green economy, give us an idea of what those are. Um, they've divided the jobs up into, into different categories. Um, many of them are to do with renewable energy. That's regarded as a one big growth area. But the largest mm. one by far is natural resource management. So within natural resource management, we've got activities related to biodiversity, um, conservation and ecosystem re restoration, um, as well as soil and land management. So if we don't look after the soils and the land management, then there really isn't too much future. And um, by restoring ecosystems, one can um, help the rivers and streams to function in a better, more natural way and therefore supply more consistent and um, cleaner water mm -hmm. for whoever wishes to use it. So it's, it's kind of rebuilding the, the natural resource base, which we all rely on. And um, in the push for the industrial period, we've tended to forget that these resources are finite and they really do have to look, be looked after better, you know? Yeah. So it's skills, it's a sort of, it, it's awareness as much as skills, isn't it? Because it's not like rocket science where you're going to have to learn a whole new thing. It's just about changing your viewpoint. It, it is that, and yet so often we change our viewpoint, but, it, but that's where it ends. We almost mm -hmm. get complacent with that. So many of us might have seen Al Gore's movie, you know, An Inconvenient Truth, yeah. and that converted many, many people's ideas, and they believed after that that they were, they were green people, but it didn't really change their lifestyles. We still switch on the same air conditioners, driving the same cars, and mm -hmm. it's a bit of a business as usual. So... With skills, you're really going that extra step. You're actually looking at what is it you can do rather than the ideas you have in your head, but what can you actually do practically um, with your colleagues, with your neighbors to reduce the impact on, on the earth and live a more sustainable lifestyle. So that's where we see the skills coming in. Will there be, um, you know, sort of take-home factor? I mean, I'm sure it will be very interesting to be there at the at the summit and, and hear what's being said and see what the demonstrations are and so on. But will there be something, uh, you know, more tangible that people who are not able to get to the summit can take home? Will there be information on websites? Yeah, the, in fact, today was the closing date for all the submissions to the school summit. So if you go on the Green Matter website, that's managing the national... In environmental skills summit you can see all the different presentations that that will okay. be going on there um, some of them will also be workshop centered so it will be people actually thrashing out different ways of developing the skills set in south africa identifying where the gaps are and what can be done about it okay and then also so, yeah. a lot of people will be bringing um, displays and and examples and actually practical um, ways of actually living more gently on the mm. earth. So there is quite a full range of uh, opportunities, whether one can get to the summit or not. Yeah, super. Well, I'm going to give out the details of the Green Matter website. I have had a look, and there's uh, certainly a lot there. So whether you're in the volunteer business, whether you're in the commercial world, or looking to sort of begin a new career, I think that there's probably a great deal to think about. And uh, None of us need say that we uh, there isn't something that we can do, whatever, and no matter how small it is. Jim, thank you very much. Very best of luck with that. And uh, let me get out the website. Dr. Jim Taylor, thank you. Great. Thank you all. Uh, Jim Taylor, Head of Environmental Education at WESA, which is the Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the National Environment Skills Summit, check it out on greenmatter.co.za. That's the website, Green Matter.
www.ghostsmith.co.za. Well, next I have with me in somebody in the studio who has been on the receiving end of some of this green skilling. She's Yonella Kiliwe. She is a Hroon Sabenza intern coming out of the Green Matter program, which is led by SANBI, which is the South African National Botanical Institute. Well, she's all of 26 years old. She's a human resource development graduate. She's from Umtata in the Eastern Cape. She studied uh, a Bachelor in Administration in Human Resource Development, also Labour Law at the UWC, but she has uh, she's decided to go green with all of this. Yonella, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Lexi. So did the green world come and get you, or did you come to it? I mean, you have all these other qualifications. Where, where did the green fit in? I came to find <laughs> the green world. Um, I went to the University of the Western Cape, and I registered for Human Resource Development, as you said. And as I did uh, the course, I realized that I'm so much interested in the field. Um, in as much as I'm from the commerce field, I didn't, oh, I was not so much into accounts and finance. So I got, I developed so much interest in people, people in the working environment. So, um, through my studies, I developed my passion in the sector. And then through university engagements, activities, we have the Green Campus Initiatives, Initiative on Campus. Okay. So we were doing that throughout the, the my undergrad years. So I, I, I developed passion for the environment and the activities thereof. So that's how I knew that okay. I have passion, a passion for the sector. So uh, you're coming back to what I was saying to Jim, it's really about awareness, isn't it? I mean, before you get any skills training, first of all, you've got to have your eyes opened. So yes. your eyes were opened. And then you joined up with the, the Sanbi's Hroon Sebenza. Now, now, what does that mean exactly what, as an intern there? What, what training are they giving you? Okay. First, let's start back. So while I was doing my honours degree, there was an advert on campus about this internship. The internship is a Khroon Sevenza internship. Khroon uh, means green, mm -hmm. so uh, green work. So I was very fascinated to see that the internship advert needed a human capital development intern. So I was so oh, shocked. your name on it, didn't it? <laughs> I was like, oh, actually, this is my speciality. So I didn't know that I can actually fit in into the sector because the environment world, you always think that it's people from the science world who can only fit in. So I was very happy. I applied. I was like, no, it's a good opportunity. I love the environment. So why not? So I applied for the sector. For, for the internship. So I got in, in it's a Khrun Sebenza sector-wide sector -wide skills development program. Uh, basically, it has 800 pioneers nationwide placed in different organization in different departments. So I'm one of the 800 placed at Worldwide Fund for Nature South Africa, which is WWF, under the program called Environmental Leaders Program. Okay. Yes. So are you an environmental leader in training? Yes, I'm an environmental leader in training. The environmental leaders program, basically we focus on skills development training. We bridge the gap uh, from students from universities into the working environment. So we're trying to balance the two. Just just this thing about skills development, it, you know, we say, well, skills development, what yes. is that? What skills are being developed here? We, um, students come straight from the university with a whole lot of 
theory in the environment into biodiversity careers, but they don't really know how to do the work and the ways of doing the work. They're not properly mentored because they were just taught in, in, in universities. So they come in to our sector and then we, we give them a relevant mentors to train them with the hope that we will retain them in the sector to be able to save the environment and our What economy. training did you have? Currently, what sort of green wise? Okay, so as a human capital development intern, I'm being trained to to be able to do training and development, to be able to look into career growth, developing new entrants into the environmental sector. Not only new entrants, though, we also develop current professional current professionals to strengthen the work that they do. So professionals professionals who are already in the sector. So basically, our work is around training and development, mentoring, organizational development. But do people go out into the environment? I mean, it's very difficult when you're in a, a, a campus like UWC, you know, just for example, you know, you're surrounded by bricks and mortar and concrete and, you know, and glass and so on. You know, one isn't necessarily out there and you do need to have a sense of what you're, what you're working with. Yeah. Do, do you spend much time in the field, quite literally? Yes, we, we, we had a whole... Uh, a whole lot of time, spent a lot of time going out last year. We visited all 23 universities in South Africa. We attended their open days and their uh, career green days. So we would get the the open days and then would visit. So a lot of time when we visit students, you find that they don't know much about the environmental and the biodiversity careers out there. So we were sort of creating an awareness that this is what you, you, you have to do and they want to work for WWF, they want to, to work for the sector. So we were encouraging them, bringing the awareness, telling them that you must do postgraduate studies and continue and come work for the sector. I mean, our sector is in a risk. We're short of skills. We have scarce skills in the sector. What we, sort of skills do you we, 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 we need a lot of taxonomists, we need a lot of environmental lawyers, we need a lot of environmental engineers, we don't have all of that. So we need all of those skills to save our environment. So that's the gospel we're preaching right yes, now. Yes. <laughs> Do you think that, um, interesting that you visited so many different universities, I'm sure you Yes, were and we have established so, so we have established a relationship with them and we're hoping to carry on and this, I'm yes. sure you were very conscious of how green they were. And you talk about the green campus at UWC, but, um, you know, how, whether they were practicing what they preach. Did you, did you get the sense that green is almost like a sort of an isolated thing when you talk about environmental engineers? You, you talk about, we talk about earth sciences and they mm. all seem to be, isolated subjects but I can't help feeling that green should be part of everything. Everyone and everyone should be involved. It's, it's part of everything actually. Um, we have our tagline as WWF saying that we are all connected with it's true. We need the engineers, engineers in the sector. We need people like me, HR people. We need uh, lawyers in the sector. We need people from finance to do uh, sustainable finance. We need all of the different fields to be able to work together and, 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 and work towards a common vision. So yeah, so whether you're a cleaner or well, a Whether you're a cleaner, a CEO, come join the sector. Yes, yes, because yes. it's always a greener way of doing a job. Yes. So what's your long-term plan? Oh, interesting. I mean, are you going to stay with human development, human resource development? Yes, definitely. I'm staying. I'm staying in my in my field. I, I love I love I love training. I love professional development. So I my plans are to are to stay in the sector. 
reason why I want to stay in the sector where we still have a lot of work to do. I intend to grow and still do human capital development and professional training in the sector. And um, so that's what also because yeah. the, uh, one of the reasons is because I didn't know that I could actually fit into the sector when I applied, remember. So I'm sure that there's a lot out there who don't know that they actually fit in. So I, I, I'm, I'm planning to in, attract a lot of young people out there who are from different disciplines to come and join the sector. And also I would uh, love to, to become one of the experts in the field. We have my manager, uh, people like Dr. Glenda Raven. She heard the program, the Environmental Leaders Program. She is um, a professional developer. She is a human capital development specialist. She's everything. She advises on the environmental sector skills plan. She works with departments, departments of environment. She she she's a consultant. She's, I, I suppose she's very of, good in the sector. You know, people, so when you're surrounded by people yes, like that, you sort of pick it up me just in, in listening to what they've got to so say. Just lastly, Yonela, how, how has it changed your, your own domestic life? I mean, this is your workplace we're talking about. Okay. But how is it impacting on, on how things are at home? Have you found yourself um, being a little bit more water conscious, a bit more energy conscious? Has it changed your personal habits? Yes, um, first of all, it has changed my life because at least now there's a better list, uh, the better living standard living standard of living at home. I can be able to support financially and coming to me, um, I'm very conscious. Uh, I would easily throw the paper anywhere. I'm very conscious about recycling. I'm saving water. I know that you use water and then you close in the tap. I mean, common sense, I'm very conscious about the things that I do now compared to before I joined the environment. Yeah, it's 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 really so an opener. I'm being greened, <laughs> I've been groomed, I've been molded. <laughs> Lovely, well, thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to come and chat to us. And I think if anybody would like to know more, once again, I'm going to give out the Green Matter website and i, I will also awesome. be on uh, you the the, the national environmental sector skills plan happening next yeah. week so i will also be one of the panelists okay. to talk on the first day so basically we'll uh, we are a group of young pioneers who are talking about voices of hope, skills in the sector, how can we do to uh, attract more young people out there to come mm. work for the sector. So it's going to be very interesting. Uh, Flying the flag, summit. green evangelism. Lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Yonela. Thank very you so much, Nancy. Thank you My for pleasure. having me. Thanks. Yonela And if you'd like to know a little bit more, she's a Hroon Sabenza intern. Well, if you'd like to know more about the Hroon Sabenza internship, and it's put together by Sanbi, uh, check the site greenmatter.co.za, greenmatter.co.za. In our SAFM documentary this Sunday. My voice adapts in the way that it would between, uh, you know, uh, Forey and Debussy, uh, between Schubert and Schumann. Songs of Summer in Cape Town, Part 2. I'm Nigel Famas. Join me for some open-air harmony. Some not-so-harmonious tales of New York. When I left New York at the beginning of 2014, I was very disillusioned with jazz and quite burnt out. And some intimate melodies in District 6. Songs of Summer in Cape Town, Part 2, this Sunday at 2.30pm on SAFM. 
Portfolio Committee on Communications hereby invites institutions and or individuals to nominate a person to fill a vacancy of a non-executive member to the board of the South African Broadcasting Corporation Limited, which arose from the resignation of a member of the board for the remainder of the term of office of the current board. That's the 24th of September, 2018. Nominees must have expertise and experience in broadcasting policy and technology, broadcasting regulation, media law, business practice and finance, journalism, entertainment and education, and labour issues. Nominations and inquiries must be addressed to the committee secretary, Mr Tembenkozi Ngoma, Portfolio Committee on Communications, email tngoma at parliament.gov.za or fax to 086-522-5740. Telephonic inquiries can be made to 021-403-3733 or 083-709-8407. Closing date for nominations is Friday the 27th of February 2015 at uh, 4 o'clock. Please note that nominees may be subjected to qualifications check and security clearance. Late submissions will not be considered. The Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, next here on the Enviro Show, it's forage time. As you know, it's a time when we talk about different foodstuffs and where they come from, how they're grown, how they end up on your plate. Well, one foodstuff is a staple food that keeps uh, South Africa going. It's maize. Well, it may not be keeping so many South Africans going very soon because this year's crop is estimated going to be uh, at least 30% down on what it was last year. And that's as a result of the current drought. Well, it's going to certainly impact on price, on export, on import quite dramatically. To tell us a little bit more about the effects and the causes and so on, we have on the line Yanni de Villiers. He's CEO of Grain South Africa. Hi, Mr de Villiers. Nice to have you with us. Good evening, Nancy. Thank you very much. Um, the extent of the drought has uh, seems to be countrywide from what I understand. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I think about two years ago we had a drought that was mostly located in the northwest province, but this year it was it was a lot wider. And, uh, you know, we, we received fairly early rain in the beginning of our, our summer season, and uh, the farmers planted, and we've planted, uh, you know, huge quantities, uh, more or less the same as last year. But uh, from the middle of January we didn't receive any rain, and uh, that caused the drought. Is there no way of forecasting this? And if there is a way of forecasting what the long-term weather patterns are, is there no way of accommodating it? I, I think so in a sense. Uh, but uh, in South Africa, we only produce about 20% of our maize under irrigation because of the limited water resources available. Uh, um, we have heard from the, the forecasters, you know, it's, it's, it could be a dry spell, a middle, midsummer drought. Uh, uh, what we've done as a country is we have specialists in what we call conservation agriculture, you know, to teach the farmers new methods to conserve the moisture in the soil and all those sort of things and how to do crop rotation and, you know, all, all those kind of things. We also spend a lot of money, uh, research money, you know, to develop uh, new drought-tolerant uh, varieties. Uh, but at the end of the day, because of the rain-fed uh, you know, the biggest part of the crop being rain-fed. If if it doesn't rain, you know, you can do as much as you can, um, but at the end, you know, we, we still need the rain in this part of the world to actually grow a crop like maize. How much, I believe last year we had a bumper crop because the conditions were favourable. Is, is that so? 
That, that's correct. We almost had a similar situation last year, and it was, I think, the first week of February. Uh, we, we had exceptionally good rain, uh, you know, something like 100 millimeters plus over that week of the 3rd, I think, of February. And that actually caused the bumper crop. Uh, you know, we had a, a similar bumper crop coming but but it just didn't rain in, in, in the middle of January, February. I think some of the farmers told me, you know, uh, the average number of days in January above 32 degrees was in a vicinity of eight days. And this year we had 22 days higher than 32 degrees Celsius, uh, you know, and, and that just caused the plants to, to to suffer when when especially when they have to start pollinating and, you know, filling the cups uh, and, and, and it was just too hot. Yeah, gosh, there's not much room for error, is there? Yeah. So, do we produce um, do we produce enough for for our own purposes? How much do we export? Because where I'm really going with this is how much at the end of a of a season are we able to store for a later period, or are we are we using everything that we get either for our own purposes or for export? Yeah, I think we we're very lucky uh, in, in terms of the maize. We we almost every year we we produce a surplus, and when we've got uh, when we produce a surplus uh, and we have to export the surplus, then the prices tend to be export parity based. That means it it is the lowest possible price that that we can pay. So it is always in our interest for food security purposes to have a surplus of maize. Uh, last year we've exported something like 1.7 million tons. Uh, uh, but we, we, we've carried over, you know, what, uh, so the prices went up and therefore the, the export stopped and, and we have got a, a quite a big, uh, carry over as we call it, um, for, for opening stock for the new season. Uh, and, uh, now this season we, we will definitely not produce enough for our own usage and we will have to import, you know, roughly about, uh, 1.6 million tons. Uh, from somewhere else uh, that is would be mostly yellow maize. Yeah. So uh, on the white maize side that is going into the staple food of the country, uh, we're going to be very tight in terms of our stock. We, we've got about 1.5 million tons available at the moment, plus the crop uh, will probably give us a, a just just a break-even point. Going to be very tight. I mean, certainly not not least in terms of food, but also in terms of finance, because we have been exporting 1.7 million tons. Not only will we not be doing that, we'll be having to pay for the import. So it's going to be uh, very very costly in yeah, financial terms. Yeah, the moment we, we when we get short, then the prices move up about 50 percent uh, to import parity, because then all the prices locally gets uh, determined based on the the volume that we have to import. Um, so, so there has been a huge increase in the price lately, um, and there was some speculation that happened the last few days because people thought that maybe the rain came on time and we didn't have as much damage. But when the Department of Agriculture today announced um, the crop estimate to be, you know, 9.66 uh, million tons, and now the market will react tomorrow uh, fairly sharply, I think, uh, upwards. And that would obviously flow into the, the food prices. So the white maize goes into the, the pop, as we call it, in South Africa. And then yellow maize for feed goes mostly to the poultry industry, you know, poultry meat, dairy products, uh, eggs, um, and, and even meat. So, so I think some of the most basic foodstuffs will probably have sharp increases in the, in the next 12 months. 
two two last questions. Have we reached a tipping point? I mean, if, if we get rains in the next in the next few days, couple of weeks, um, is it still salvageable, or is it too uh, late? Have we have we gone past? I, I think. Well, the short answer is it's a bit too late. Um, yeah. I think the plants' uh, physiological, you know, have come to the point where they they can't produce any more. Uh, you know, pollen and, and, and things like that. So I think, you know, there they could be some of the very late plantings that could benefit from the rain if, if there's rain. And, and there's some good forecasts for the, the up-and-coming weekend. Uh, that might help us a bit. But I think, in general, I think we, we haven't made it and, and we're going to face a tough season ahead. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to start practicing rain dancing. Just lastly, you mentioned there that we you've been spent a lot of research and a lot of money on new drought-tolerant uh, uh, seeds, presumably, um, genetically modifi- modified. How much of our maize is genetically modified? And what we've always understood about genetic modification is that it is um, able to produce seeds that or crops that are more drought tolerant. Have, have we not come very far down there, notwithstanding any controversy about genetic modification? Yeah, yeah, it's always a, a long discussion about mm. that. But at the moment, uh, about 85% of the South African maize crop is genetically modified, you know, whether it's herbicide or pesticide or whatever. Um, and and um, last year, I think the Agricultural Research Council released some new varieties that was uh, developed with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation around uh, water-efficient maize, they call it. Um, and, and they have planted this uh, trials and dished out a few seed packets in some of the communities to try it out specifically. Um, we, we, we don't know exactly what was the result. Uh, we will probably wait this year, but there's a lot of work that we are currently doing all over to try and uh, and, and especially the, the seed companies, uh, you know, typically, you know, the Monsantos and Panar and those that we're familiar with in South Africa, um, busy trying to develop new varieties that is more drought tolerant, especially with all the climate change research that has been yeah. done uh, but we, we we are not there yet but we're making good progress yeah well fascinating as you say uh gm it's a whole sort of a topic on itself or we'll leave it all by itself we'll leave it at that for for the moment and may there be rain very soon whether it's too late or not um, one can only just hope for life-giving rain lovely mr de villiers thank you very much for joining us take care Thanks. you're most welcome thank you Mr. Yanni de Villiers, he's CEO of Green South Africa, and I think that's going to affect us all one way or another, certainly those prices, a uh, little bit scary. So don't forget if you've got thoughts about um, about any sort of farming activities or, or thoughts about any particular foodstuffs that you'd like to know a little bit more about, how they're grown, where they're grown, if you can grow them, pop us a mail. We're at uh, enviro at safm.co.za, enviro at safm.co.za equally you can send us a message on our facebook page which is the enviro show on safm well we're moving on from one crop one very legal crop to another um that is rather less so cannabis or dacha that's grown really quite prolifically in the eastern cape or the former trans sky but it's presently being destroyed by a fairly aggressive program of crop spraying so it seems well, there are a number of issues here about the growing and use of cannabis, certainly. But what's on the table right now is the wider damage that crop spraying is doing on the other vegetation and the people in the area that are being sprayed. So with his take on the issue, we have on the line Julian Stobes. Now, Julian is uh, one of the Ducker couple. He's a director of social activism and he operates under the banner of Fields of Green. We've got him on the line to explain all. Hi, Julian. 
Good evening to you. Hi, nice to have you with us. Um, Julian, just explain to us your, the Dacha couple, your director of social activism. Just tell us where you're coming from. <laughs> yes, uh, the Dacha couple are uh, my partner and I, Myrtle Clark, are taking the government to task in the courts uh, to try and uh, overturn the cannabis laws of South Africa because it's a vital product that we need to be able to use. And the banner of Field of Green for All is a non-profit company that we've set up to achieve just that. And um, we are um, in operation for the last two years. Uh, we're more involved in the harms that prohibition has rather than the, the attributes of the plant itself. Okay, fair enough. Nonetheless, a vital product that we need to use. Just just to explain that. I mean, there are people who are going, oh, I roll, you know, Dacha, <laughs> cannabis, etc., etc. Yeah, and I said that sometimes it's a very tough sell, but the bottom yeah. line is all the way around the world, governments uh, are realizing that punitive measures to try and stop people using this plant are failing dramatically. And, it's, and the prohibition itself is doing more harm than good, and that much more harm than the plant ever could. And we, as a, as a nation, um, grow some of the finest marijuana in the whole world, and people know that. And it is on sale in all over the other parts of the world, and we can't even use it here. It's a legendary product, and South Africans are watching helicopters spraying it to kill it. So it makes no sense to us whatsoever at all. Yeah. Do you use it? And if you use it, for what do you use it? And see, I've used it for 30 years. I think I've been uh, driving illegally for the last three decades because it takes a month for it to leave your body. And I can't remember not having it in my bloodstream for, you know, less than a week at a time. So I've used it extensively most of my life. And uh, it's helped me along in my life. I enjoy using it. Um, um, I, 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 I don't get into the medical aspect of it because I know it is medicine. I don't make any distinctions between it being good for you or bad for you. It's good for me. Sometimes it's bad for other people. Okay, well, we're going to leave that particular issue, yeah. you know, we're going to park that right there. The issue that you have is that it's being sprayed to try and wipe out the the vast amounts of it that are apparently being grown in the Eastern Cape. How much is being grown? And, and tell us about the, the spraying program. Well, um, if, you, if we read through the newspaper reports that... Um, We'd like to think that we helped generate the, the interest that we've caused through social media when we heard on the ground that there were people spraying this year. And we jumped on it this time because um, as an organization, we're, we're a bit more, we're stronger as a unit. We've got a bit more funding and now we can go out and try and expose this for what it is and get people like yourselves interested in such a subject because it affects absolutely everyone. The papers say about 500 hectares of uh, Dacha was sprayed, but we'd like to rephrase that and say an area of 500 hectares was sprayed, period. It may well have been, uh, the intent may well have been Dacha, but between Myrtle and I, when we went into the Transkei to see for ourselves two weeks ago, that it's evident that it's not actually the case. There are, some areas have been completely destroyed and they are devoid of Dacha, but most of it has drifted and the Dacha is still usable, which is another problem altogether because a lot of sprayed product is now ending up in the Siki Siki and Flagstaff and areas on its way to the N2, and people are, uh, are using uh, cannabis in the Siki Siki, and they're all getting sick because that's been sprayed as well. So um, I know it's an illegal product. I know the police are doing their job, and they're constitutionally bound to try and eradicate this evil, evil weed, but um, the repercussions are absolutely staggering, Nancy. We saw some um, things that I will never forget, and it's just 
lunacy that the, the South African Police Service think that they're going to win this over because we believe that it's the only country in the world that is actually doing this anymore. The rest of the world has realised the error of its is as it were. Do you know what it's being sprayed with? Oh, yes, I know quite extensively. In fact, I can't believe how much I do now know all of a sudden. I didn't used to know so much, but now I've kind of researched it a bit. And um, it is, um, it, it's a glyphosate-based herbicide product in, in itself. It is not absolutely lethal, really, really. We do, I, I can see that, um, you know, it is a, it's a broad-spectrum uh, herbicide. And uh, it's, it's not a complete killer there and then in a small amount. But I'm afraid what I saw of burnt water courses and trashed fields, um, um, I think that the, the mixes, I'm not an expert, but we, we saw some serious, seriously burnt, eradicated areas of, um, of uh, st- a really stark landscape where nothing was growing. And I, I don't know, uh, it's called a Kilo Max. That's what the actual product name is in this country. It's kind of like Roundup, and a Roundup, of course, is a Monsanto-based product that has had a lot of uh, publicity, put mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, what, what we think as laymen, after reading through all of these, this literature, um, the jury is very much out on this product. It really is. There's, there's so much literature saying that this is a very, very bad product long term. So as, as learned piece people in, in, in environmental circles have pointed out, you should err on the side of caution. If you think for any reason that this is going to kill foodstuffs, pollute watercourses, affect livestock and humans, then stop. Yes, because the purpose of, I mean, I don't know sufficient about crop spraying to be sort of really asking the right questions necessarily here, but the purpose generally of crop spraying is to get rid of bugs, but the purpose of this crop spraying is to get rid of crops. Uh, yeah. So it's oh, not, it's, it's to getting... To get rid of a crop. But, um, but it's not just getting it, rid of that particular crop, it's getting... No, it behaves on all crops. Mm. It's, 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 um, it's systematically destroyed it touches to varying degrees. I mean, the, the drift that we saw into mealy plantations, you can actually see... The, the progression of the wind drift that has affected right down to the roots or just the, the tips and the stems of, of, of each plant. And we, uh, we, interviewed, um, we interviewed villagers and we, um, we'll never forget it. Their, their mealies are gone, their, their, their ground crops, their beans and their pumpkins, they've all gone. And their water courses are polluted, there's diarrhea in the house, there's, uh, we, we heard reports of miscarriages in livestock, we didn't see it, but it was corroborated um, uh, verbally on more than one occasion. So there's a lot of distress, and you know, people, this is subsistence stuff, these guys don't do jobs, they're just growing mealies for their families for the rest of the year, and they're very confused about why these helicopters are coming along and spraying everything. They don't understand if they don't understand what their government's doing. And can it be categorically proven that that it's as a result of this particular crop spraying that all these these things that you've you've researched and seen um, are happening? You know what? I will stick my neck out here and now and say categorically yes. There's too much information out there. We we personally have seen too much stuff. In the few days that we that we were there on the ground with their activist friends who got the they got the uh, the community involved to talk to us, we gained their confidence, because of course you can't just walk into these areas, they're growing Dhaka as far as the eye can see, Nancy. 500 hectares that the police have boasted about is this ridiculous, this small amount of nothing. 
you can see 500 kilos with a blink of an eye in one small valley, and there are 300 more valleys. And it's been in those valleys for 700 years, and a few police helicopters are not going to eradicate it, but they are going to affect lots and lots of communities that may or not be using the cannabis plant. Yeah. Um, they, they, this plant actually ends up, I believe, down in the major cities because we've seen it being used extensively for feed, for livestock, for ailments, for traditional medicines that go back hundreds of years. So this is not this is a cash crop to put food on the table. Julian, we're going to leave it there, but thank you very much for, for your thoughts. I'm going to give out the details. If anybody would like to know a little bit more, duckacouple.co.za or fieldsofgreen, I think, .org. Is that the website? Fields... It's, actually, it's actually fieldsofgreenforall.org. Okay, fieldsofgreenforall.org.za. Is that yeah. right? Fields, super. Lovely. Thank you very much. Very best of luck with the with the fight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Julian Stobbs of Ducker Couple, DuckerCouple.co.za or fieldsofgreenforall.org.za. I think it was fieldsofgreenforall.org.za. Otherwise, just Google Fields of Green for All. And if you've got thoughts on that, let us know. Pop us a mail. It's uh, enviro at safm.co.za. Enviro at safm.co.za. But it's all happening here in Cape Town in terms of art and craft and design and all sorts of wonderful things. There's the design for uh, there's the design in Darba. There's the Cape Town Art Fair. There's the Guild Design Exhibition. There's the Open Museums Exhibition tonight. So if you're an art lover in any shape or form, my goodness me, Cape Town is only the place to be. Well, I put my nose into the design in Darbo this afternoon. There's all sorts of things going on there, not least the uh, the EcoBrick Exchange. And we have on the line Ian Domisa, who is the founder of EcoBrick, uh, to tell us all about it. Hi, Ian. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for calling. Absolute pleasure. Um, you've obviously been to the design in Darbo and had a good look around. Yeah, it was amazing to see all the different um, things they have on display today. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's very beautiful, I must say. There's all sorts of things. It's also very dark, and I wondered if perhaps ESCOM had uh, done a bit of load shedding. There didn't seem to be an awful lot of light there. <laughs> However, that we, I definitely found your eco bricks. Tell us about your eco bricks. I think we've spoken about them on the program before, but I think you've taken them to sort of bigger and better heights. Explain to us what an eco brick is. Basically, an eco brick is a two-liter plastic bottle filled with unrecyclable plastic waste that usually uh, litters the environment. And we heard about this and we thought it would be a fantastic way to build a preschool in a township in Port Elizabeth. And so we've um, partnered with some architects and engineers and we are replacing a shack preschool with a high quality uh, learning environment. When you say we heard about this, did, is, did you hear about it somewhere else? I mean, this is not your, of your own devising? Yeah, so EcoBricks were first used to uh, construct buildings in Guatemala, um, and they used a system uh, with concrete plastering and things like that. Um, and so we heard about it through the Great Transition Town, um, where they've actually built a, a small classroom um, using earth materials and we found this such a fan fantastic way of environmental awareness um, and but we what we did when we spoke with the architects is that we found that 
that form of construction wouldn't be approved and um, by our strict energy regulations. So we worked with architects and engineers and we came up with a sort of a wall sandwich that would both meet the local municipal regulations as well as um, withstand our driving rains that are quite a factor in South Africa. So the so you've got the two litre bottles, cool drink bottles, filled with rubbish, so you're cleaning up the environment, and you put them between, as you call it, a wall sandwich. Yeah, and the wall sandwich is a lightweight steel structure. So it's different to ordinary brick walls in that these bricks won't be carrying load themselves. And then on either side of these bottles are um, pieces of boarding, which are magnesium oxide boarding, and these are fireproof and waterproof, and these then get plastered so the walls look um, regular. Yeah. You know, we were talking about job creating and, and the green economy and creating sort of green-skilling people. Uh, this sounds to me like a sort of an ideal opportunity for people who are going to go A and find the uh, find the two-liter bottles um, and, and all the rubbish that goes in it. Or are you working with any of the, the cool drink manufacturers? No, you, well, this, how is, does it this work? is what's been a beautiful thing, is that we needed 6,000 eco-bricks to build the school. And so, you know, we thought that this was going to be quite a hard task especially because it takes roughly an hour to compact um, all the plastic to make one eco-brick. Um, but what is beautiful in Port Elizabeth is people have been so generous with their time and their energy, and um, they've been sending us eco-bricks in, and we've been collecting them through different drop-off points across the city. I just have to ask you this. Uh, in You know, the stuff that you're putting inside those bottles is it all clean? I'm just thinking about sort of rubbish going there and rotting and festering and, and, and you know. Is it, does <laughs> yeah, it all so get a bit the nasty? The one uh, re prerequisite is that it must be dry. Okay. And yeah, it's it's all plastic packaging, um, but the bottles themselves are sealed, and then they also are sealed within the wall membrane itself. So there's sort of a double seal. Technology. So it's sort of human energy that's required rather than any other sort of um, fossil fuel energy. Yeah, and it's great because, as you say, it's a low-skilled um, construction form. And when we work, when we get to the construction phase, that's also going to be the concentration is, is us learning from the suppliers and all the different building specialists in a way that we can pass on this um, technique to, to other you know, members, if you look at shack dwellers at the moment, although the shack itself is not an ideal environment in terms of keeping withstanding the natural elements, shack dwellers are themselves very intuitive in terms of, of constructing. So if we can just spread this, this uh, system of building other people that people can actually just improve their own yeah. living situation it, it themselves. It may not necessarily be sort of aspirational in terms of architectural materials but it's certainly it's it's a solution to a lot of things very very briefly uh, eco brick exchange what exchange in what way? Oh so the exchange part just came because when we were motivating people to make eco bricks in the township we set up a swap shop where secondhand clothing items and other items of value would uh, were traded for eco bricks, so that 
people actually took to the streets and cleaned up their own environment. But yeah, we, we see it as, you know, the people that we're building the school for, they help us and they help us and in return we sort of guide them in, in the different directions. So the exchange part is kind of multifaceted. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole thing is kind of multifaceted, and yeah. Lovely. Thank you very much. I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to check it all out and find out more. It's ecobrickexchange.wix.com, ecobrickexchange.wix.com. Ian Domasa, thank you very much. Perfect. Thanks so much, Take Nancy. care. Cheers. And if you'd like to see those eco bricks, get yourself along to the Design in Darba here in Cape Town until through till Sunday, I think it is. Otherwise, check the site, ecobrickexchange.wix.com. Thanks, team. Kim Winter and Rob Parkin and I'm Nancy Richards who have